We turn to the prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 37. Keep in mind that Ezekiel was the prophet who was to minister to the exiles, those who were by the river Kibar and called the Babylonian captivity. This prophecy here follows the destruction of Jerusalem. The first two-thirds of the book precede the destruction of Jerusalem because there were more than one band of exiles taken into captivity. There was an early band 11 years prior to the destruction of Jerusalem comprised mainly of sons of princes and priests and nobility and taken as hostages so that Zedekiah the king was warned and if you do not pay tribute as you have promised I may well execute all of these the children of your nation. He did not do that but that was the threat and so you have the first part of the prophecy prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and that's why when you read in the beginning of Ezekiel in the first few verses of the fifth year and then the 30th year you're referring to these exiles having been in the land with Daniel his three friends and so on early exiles for five years and at the age of 30 Ezekiel was called to be a prophet he enters the exile goes with the early band of captives when he's 25 a son of a priest and at the age of 30 he's called to be a prophet with that outstanding vision of those cherubim ride upon chariots that have no horses but wheels within wheels and governed by the minds of those cherubim as they come to examine the land and the people and to find it wanting and to come really with the threat of a judgment of this holy God. That's prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. This prophecy about a year following the, the destruction of Jerusalem. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones and caused me to pass by them round about and behold there were very many in the open valley and lo they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Again he said unto me, Prophesy upon these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live. And ye shall know that I am the Lord. Notice that word. I am Jehovah. I am the God of faithfulness. And I will keep my word, though you have miserably failed to keep yours because of who I am. As he says in the text, just the chapter just previously, not for your sakes do I this. And in the text chapter just previous to that, I will do this for my name's sake because of who I am. And yet, in that Lord is the love for this people. 
So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried, and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves, and will cause you to come up out of your graves, and bring you into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord, when I open, have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves, and shall put my spirit in you. That should be spirit with capital S. And ye shall live, and I shall place you in your own land, and then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it, and performed it, saith the Lord. And then you have a number of verses which speaks of the Lord in this redemptive work of his bringing both the northern part of Israel and the southern part, that is, northern kingdom uh, represented by Ephraim, and then the southern part by Judah, called here, uh, one is Joseph and one is is, uh, Judah together, to make them one people again. Now we go to verse 22. And I'll make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people, and I will be their God. And now note, And David my servant shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them, yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Our text consists of verses 1 through 11. That's the focus, but this passage must be understood in its historical context. A people who were at the point of despair. And not simply because Jerusalem had been destroyed and demolished, basically obliterated from the face of the earth, walls and temple and Ark of the Covenant gone. And despair, not simply because of the slaughter, though the slaughter had been horrifying beyond words, the slaughter 
of the young men and maidens, not only, but taking little ones in the hundreds, maybe the thousands, and dashing them against the stones, because when we take the trek from Jerusalem to Babylon, they will be a hindrance, and we will have no hindrances. Slay the little ones. But even more than that, adding to the despair, was this. They knew it was the doing of God in his wrath and in his displeasure, and it was no more than they deserved. We are a people now without hope. Not only have we been destroyed as a nation, apparently we have been disinherited. And to this people must now come a word through the mouth of this Ezekiel, part of which is in 37 of the prophecy, chapter 37. But you find in this context, around 37, regular references to God's covenant and his covenant mercies. You recall we read it in the chapter, we read the covenant of peace, but there's other references as well in the other chapter surrounding 37. God's faithfulness in spite of their unfaithfulness, his intention, determination to keep his word, to yet preserve to himself a people in their generations. Remember, we read concerning children and children's children, if you recall. But even to gather from those who had gone astray and were numbered with the apostate, that even some of them would be ingrafted again into the vine. And adding to that, if you read the context, it becomes plain. And when I gather you out of the nations, I will not only bring you out of the nations, I will bring remnants of the nations with you and will save those who were numbered with the Gentiles and once your enemies. Magnifying, you see, God of salvation, but a God faithful to covenant promises in spite of man's unfaithfulness. But let's understand, not only does this passage magnify the God of the covenant in his covenant, this is a passage that magnifies the preaching of the gospel. Prophesy, son of man. And again, he says to me, prophesy, son of man. And then understand, if the preaching of the gospel is magnified, then the importance of attending to the preaching of the word. And attending doesn't mean simply, well, we heard what was said, but attending by laying it to heart and responding properly as required. And he was to preach the faithfulness of God, but we must see also he was to preach what has to do with the call to repentance. That looms large in this passage by implication. This passage is bracketed by references to repentance and the call to repentance. There is one great passage with whom almost everyone in the world is familiar that is found in Ezekiel. It ranks right up there almost with God so loved the world. Turn ye, turn ye. Turn ye from your evil ways. Why will ye die, 
O house of Israel. And that turning has to do with the call to repentance. Salvation, beloved, is all of grace. But to say that salvation is all of grace does not in any way mute and must not mute or dismiss the call to repentance. It is necessary. It is vital. Beloved, and that's what we must see in this passage as well. Why is repentance so important? Why is it so vital? Why? Consider Jerusalem, beloved. Consider the consequences upon a people who did not turn ye, turn ye, turn ye from their evil way. Don't think there's not consequences from a refusal and a failure to repent. It is in the way of repentance that one comes to know the mercies of the Lord. So this is a passage that underscores the importance and the need for that and the work of grace, beloved, that enables there to be such a people who will hear the word of the Lord and respond as they are required. A gospel word which gives hope to the greatest of sinners. God be thanked. With that in mind, Ezekiel's vision of dry bones, what Ezekiel saw, and then, of course, what he saw, what that represented, those bones represented, what he was called to do, you say, preach. He was called to preach. Preach what? We must see. And what came forth? A multitude, but notice, not just a multitude, a multitude that is designated as a exceeding great army. A word chosen with care. So the valley of the dry bones and Ezekiel's vision. Like the Apostle John in the book of the Revelation, Ezekiel was given to see visions. Visions that had to do with history and the history as it has to do especially with the church in judgment, but judgments even unto salvation. It has been some time since Ezekiel has received a vision. The first part of the book is filled with these visions, and then there follows a section in which you simply read, and the word of the Lord came unto Ezekiel, and the Spirit of the Lord moved Ezekiel to say this and that. The last time he received a vision had been some seven years prior, and you find that vision in chapter 8 of Ezekiel. A vision, of course, means that your body remains in a certain location, and for Ezekiel that would have been by the river Kibar in the land of Babylon, but he is transported by the Spirit as to his mind in almost a virtual reality to a different location, as in the valley of the dry bones. But back in chapter 8, he was transported as to his mind to the city of Jerusalem itself. And given there to hear and to see what was going on in that city, 
as God made plain to him and he would make plain to the people why judgment was going to fall upon Jerusalem and the nation as such. And a severe judgment, an outpouring of a wrath. And so this is the sixth year back in chapter 8. It's the sixth year in the sixth month. That is the sixth year of their exile and one year into his ministry, if you will. And the Lord puts forth the form of a hand in verse 3 and takes him and brings him to Jerusalem to the door of the inner gate that looks towards the north. So he's at the gates of the city of Jerusalem at the beginning of that vision, which will run through chapter 11. And then he takes a tour of the city according to the vision. They can't see him, but he can see them and hear them. And what he saw, beloved, was things on the walls of the people in their homes. And they were wicked abominations. In other words, beloved, they were pornographic murals. As he goes through this city that calls itself the city of the Lord, it was filled with these homes that had pornographic murals. What's new under the sun? And then he would hear groups of people together and look into the doors and they were bowing down before different idols and images that they had in their homes. And he takes this tour of the, of the city with all of its abominations practiced by princes and priests and by the common citizens as well. And finally he comes to chapter 4 and the Spirit lifts him up and brings him to the east gate of the Lord's house that looks eastward. And he sees two men, a Jeazaniah and a Palatiah, who are princes of the people. Son of man, he says in verse 3, these are the men that devise mischief, great evil, abominations, and give wicked counsel in this city. What is their counsel as they follow and pr practice these immoralities? Which say it is not near. What's not near? The judgment that Jeremiah keeps talking about is not near. It's not going to occur. We have been faced with these things again and again, and the Lord has always delivered us out of the judgment because we are his people. The city is the cauldron. Let us build houses. Let's plan for the future. We have a long future in, in, in front of us, despite what the Je prophet Jeremiah says and warns. It's only a month, understand, before the destruction of Jerusalem. The city is the cauldron, that is, it's the, it's the bowl, and we are the flesh, we are the meat, we are the stew in, the, in the, the bowl. We are what makes this city taste good to the Lord. Can you imagine? Therefore prophesy against them, prophesy, O son of man, and the Spirit of the Lord falls upon him, and he speaks concerning judgments. And then this, Go to the conclusion of chapter 11. As for them whose heart walketh after the heart of their detestable things and their abominations, this is verse 21, I will recompense their way upon their own heads, saith the Lord God. Then did the cherubims, those same cherubims with which the prophecy of Ezekiel opened and called him to his prophetic office, those cherubims lifted up their wings and the wheels besides them and the glory of the God of Israel was over them above and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain which was on the east side of the city which would be Mount Olives but he has departed. Ichabod, beloved. Ichabod. 
the glory has departed. God has vacated his house, the temple, and now they are wide open to assault and invasion, and the Lord God is not there to protect the city and keep it from being destroyed with its inhabitants. He has given it over to the Babylonians, and within one month, Nebuzaradan and the general of Nebuchadnezzar will his, his forces break through the gates, come over the walls, and begin the great demolition project and the slaughter of the inhabitants and their frustration having to besiege it a year and a half and angry beyond words. And they cause the blood to flow down the streets of the youth and even the little ones. And then the spirit catches Ezekiel up and takes him back in his mind into the body by the river Kibar. That's what has preceded, you see, the vision we have in chapter 37. They were given to idolatry. What's the attraction to idolatry? Well, at the same time, they would go to the temple and bring some sacrifices because they had to I put it this way, hedge their bets, also have the favor of God, they thought, to bring some sacrifices because when they really needed him, they might have to call upon him, but they pursued their idols. What's the attraction of idolatry over and over again? Well, it's quite simple. If you bring idols some sacrifices, which is to say they're priests, then they will assure you that you're taken care of and you may go out and you may live as you please. You may continue in your immoralities with no problem at all as long as you give us our sacrifices and our fair cut of your income. That's idolatry. It sanctions immorality and keeps one supposedly from the consequences. That's not Jehovah God, the holy God. Just bring me some sacrifices, come into the sanctuary, say a few prayers, kneel before this or that, and then go your way and continue to live as you please. That's not Jehovah God, the Holy God, and that is not the biblical and the Christian faith. And these people didn't want that which required self-denial, taking up their cross and living according to the restrictions of the Word of God with its laws, its rules, and its regulations. And so they continued in their immoralities and the judgment, beloved, as prophesied, falls. We read of that in chapter 33, verse 21. And it came to pass in the twelfth year of our captivity, one year after Jerusalem is destroyed, news finally reaches the river Kibar. It's a great distance. And finally, a year later, news reaches the river Kibar, One had escaped out of Jerusalem, came to me saying, the city is smitten. That is, it's demolished. It's obliterated. It's gone. And we read that Ezekiel sits there dumb for a while, dumbstruck at the horror of what he hears. And finally we read in verse 22, and the spirit comes in the evening and he opens my mouth and he, my mouth was open. I was no more dumb, and the word of the Lord came to me, and I began to speak, and he began to prophesy again. It's in that context that you read, you see, you have this vision, which you have in chapter 37, 
which is in the end a word to a people who were in the despair almost beyond all hope. It's, of course, a word that is summarized in verse 11. Our bones are dried, our hope is lost, and we are cut off in all of our parts. Prophesy, son of man. But before you prophesy, I must show you something. And so he shows them him this valley of the dry bones. And he passes by, and there were very many in the open valley, and they were very, very dry. This wasn't simply skeletons laying on the, on the field below. These were simply bones scattered hither, thither, and yon, and simply piles of them. And the birds probably there to peck, peck them dry, not even with marrow in them to say nothing of flesh. Who do those dry bones represent? Well, they do not represent, beloved, the corpses that was strewn between Jerusalem and the river Kibar in the trek that took place. It's not what the bones represent Israel, the Israelites who have already died. These dry bones represent the living. They represent, first of all, the Israel that then was. That's what we read in 11. These bones are the whole house of Israel. They were very, very dry. And, of course, then the question was, can these bones live? And Ezekiel understands what the Lord is asking is this. Tell me, Ezekiel, can something come out of such a ruin and devastation as is true of Jerusalem and out of a nation that has been so sinful and unfaithful as my people Israel in their wickedness and in their sins. Can anything come out of them that will be of service to me and my kingdom and the advance of that kingdom and the victories of that kingdom? A people who will serve the Lord and fight the battle of faith and obtain victories. Thou knowest, Lord, meaning It's self-evident it is not. Even if this people were at this time brought back to the promised land, they would be of no use at all to the Lord in the establishment of the promised kingdom, in the advance of the kingdom, and fighting the battle of faith and having victories. We are cut off in all our parts. These bones represent then first of all, what we know as apostate and apostatizing Israel, or if you will, Judah, and those of Judah and little Benjamin that was also part of it. But these bones, of course, can also be said to represent the whole of fallen mankind. As we have fallen in Adam, and all that of mankind which remains unbelieving and under the power of sin. And those who remain under the power of sin, of course, remain under the power of death, representing those whom we refer to as totally depraved. Read of that in Ephesians chapter 2. And you, and then there's three words in italics, hath he quickened. But that's not in the original. That phrase waits until verse 5. And then you have the insertion. Paul is addressing the early New Testament church, many of whom were Gentiles, and you, and he pauses, 
who were dead in trespasses and sins, when in time past he walked according to the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air that works in the children of disobedience, whom we all had our conduct in times past, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. That's the whole of mankind lost in sin without the work of the Holy Spirit. That a man is dead in trespasses and sins does not mean merely, beloved, that he is under the sentence of death and he may live this life and do many good things that may please God, but in the end, for all that, he's going to die and enter everlasting perdition anyway because he's under the sentence of death. doesn't simply mean that. Nor even does it simply mean that man cannot save himself. It may mean that, but it means far more than simply a man cannot save himself. The Arminians will save a man cannot save himself. That's why you need Christ, and here is Christ. And now we call upon you to, to choose Christ, and then God may respond to you as you have chosen Christ. And they may use all kinds of different means and methods to somehow persuade people that they should be the ones who should choose Christ to their own advantage in this way or the other. More than that, not simply that a man cannot save himself. To be dead in trespasses and sins, beloved, means not only you can't save yourself, it means that one does not even desire salvation when salvation is properly defined. And salvation properly defined is not merely being saved from wrath. Make a confession of the Lord Jesus, join a church, get baptized, take the Lord's Supper now and again, and when you die, some clergy will say, man will say good things over you, and presto, you will be in heaven. Nothing to fear. It's not salvation. Salvation, beloved, by grace, is not simply that one is saved from the consequences of one's sin, and the curse is lifted. Salvation, properly defined, also means one is saved from the power of sin and the rule of sin, and one seeks God with all, one, all one's heart and loves the Lord God and will serve Him and submit to his word in every particular. Bring thy word to bear, Lord, that I may walk therein and be done with those delightful sins and forsake the way of disobedience. That's salvation properly defined. And no man of himself wants salvation so defined. What leave the pleasures of my sin beginning on the first day of the week? Are you kidding me? Listen, church modify what's required of Christianity, and we may well join you and leave an offering or two behind. And the church of our age, in many, many instances, has accommodated that mentality and altered the truth concerning salvation and what salvation means for a man and requires of a man to show that he has been saved indeed, walking in the ways of obedience and forsaking the ways of sin. Dry bones, beloved. We are dry bones in the bondage of sin. The bondage of the will, I think a great reformer put it. Unable not only to save ourselves, unwilling to seek the salvation that is set forth as defined by the Holy Scriptures. And yet you say, well, there are those who have sought that salvation. Yes, they have. Many of whom are sitting here this, this evening, are you not? Why is it that you are interested in salvation and serving the Lord God? Someone has taken hold of you, has he not? And changed a heart and breathed upon you the breath of life. Apart from that irresistible 
grace of the Holy Spirit, there is not one mother's son amongst us who would desire salvation as defined by the Holy Scriptures and to deny ourselves all those things, modify your requirements, and maybe I will give a hearing then. But not so, beloved, the Holy Scriptures and not the prophet Ezekiel either. Turn ye, turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? Apart from that mighty grace of God blowing upon a man by the Holy Spirit, the love there is no hope for the carnal unbeliever. No hope in himself. But this point must be made also. These dry bones don't simply refer to the spiritually dead. These dry bones also have a reference to those who are spiritually alive, who are the remnant of the house of Israel and are the Israel of God indeed, meaning you and me as well. We can be described as being dry bones from a certain point of view. Don't forget, it's the remnant. It's the remnant, beloved, that asks the question and say, our bones are dried, our hope is lost, we are cut off in our parts who go to the, to the prophet. That's not the carnal who go to the prophet, it's the spiritual who go to the, to the prophet in their despair. They may be weak in faith and negligent also in, in godliness for all that, They are the people of God and have a new beginning. And they say these things in verse 11. The whole house of Israel, says says God. Not just part of the house, the the carnal. They are the whole house of Israel. And the heart of him is this remnant. And they say we're cut off. Cut off how? We are dry bones, beloved, when it comes to producing spiritual seed. You and I cannot produce spiritual seed. And when seed is conceived by us and we are married to a believing spouse, that seed is conceived dead in trespasses and sins. And something must take place in the womb by the power of the Holy Spirit to breathe life into that little living person. Or he remains dead. And if he is an Esau, he will remain dead. But if he is a Jacob or she is a Rebecca or a Ruth. He will breathe into them, maybe in the womb, commonly in the womb, but maybe shortly after birth, or even later in life, according to his electing purpose. Beloved, you say, we bring forth spiritual seed. Not strictly speaking. We bring forth living persons who have physical life, and we are, and God uses us to bring forth spiritual seed. That's his covenant promise, don't you see? As the little one develops in the womb, I may even then enter into that little one's heart and give newness of life. It may be after birth, if it's my will, later in life, but commonly to believing parents while they are yet in the womb, which gives hope, you know, to those who have experienced miscarriages of little ones in the womb and the grief that goes with those miscarriages and the hope that is dashed and the arms that remain empty and that silent, silent 
grief that one mother will carry with her to the end of her days, not even forgetting that little one the Lord took from her and them so early in their development. One of the great pastoral promises of the gospel beloved, Isaiah 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. And the heart of that passage is that great shepherd who shall carry the lambs in his bosom and gently lead those who have my young, who are even in the womb, my lambs. And if I take one from you or two or three, you will see them again in glory. Be assured of that. That's the truth, you see, of the dry bones. But now you're dealing with a people, a remnant, who says, does the demolition of Jerusalem and the fact that we have been driven from the land mean that God is loosed from his covenant promise and we are simply dry bones because we cannot bring forth the spiritual seed of ourselves. And if he looses himself from his promise, we are cut off. We're done. Why go on? We can't bring forth the seed of the woman. Is that what this means? Prophesy to us, Ezekiel. What is the meaning of this? And even Ezekiel, you know, when he heard of the anger of the Lord and his displeasure and the judgment that would, would fall, and then with his own ears would actually hear how the full horror of it almost despaired. So that you read a couple of times in here, I'm just going to read one instance in chapter 11, in that first vision that I read, it's not his first vision, but the vision that I read earlier, there's a, he prophesies, he, he, uh, Ezekiel preaches, and this man falls down dead, almost like Ananias and Sapphira. And I fell down upon my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, wilt thou make a full end of the remnant of Israel? Is that what you're going to do, Lord? Cut us all off, we're done? Because if our unfaithfulness means thou art loosed from thy promises, then we are cut off. Because we are, when it comes to the spiritual remnant, dry bones. Only thou canst bring from us that which has spiritual life. And children and children's children who will be the church of tomorrow. And for this nation, the seed of the woman herself. That beloved was the fear. And to answer that fear and to respond to that need, you had the vision of 37. He carries me and sets me in the midst of this valley full of bones. And I pass by them there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. Not corpses, bones without even marrow in them. Son of man, tell me, can bones such as this live? Can they rise up and walk and be of service to anyone at all? Thou knowest, Lord, from every human point of view, it is impossible.
And when I consider Israel, it seems unlikely. And again, he says to me, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Interesting, you know. Again, he said unto me, and I'm convinced that means more than simply just a verse or two. He has, says, he has said to them that he was to prophesy or something. But when he says again, he means as you have been in the past, prophesy unto them. And he says this to Ezekiel because Ezekiel was at the point of despair. Why prophesy? Why preach to this people? What difference does it make? Jeremiah preached for 50 years, Lord, and where did it get him? And where did it get Israel? It got us into the Babylonian captivity. That's where it ended up. Nothing has happened to this people. They don't turn. Their hearts are hard. They are dull of hearing. They continue right on their own way. Why preach? It's a waste of time. We preach our heads off. And what, do you, what fruit do we see? Judgment and wrath and Lord apparently being cut off. Again, he said to me, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and ye shall live. I will lay sinners upon you and bring flesh upon you. I'm going to do something, Ezekiel. You're going to preach as you have in the past and as Jeremiah has in the past. And I am going to honor my word. I will do that when I determine to honor my word. You go about your business of preaching. You take care of your end as I call you to it. And I will do what I have determined when I have determined to do it. Let's understand, beloved, that you do not, that, that, verse, that fourth verse is a important, mighty verse. The chapter is not this. Son of man, verse 3, can these bones live? Lord, thou knowest, and then right into verse 5, and the Lord says, I will cause breath to enter into them, and they shall live, and I will cause sinews upon them, and cause flesh upon them, and breath in them, and they shall live. No, no. He inserts what we refer, refer to as verse 4. Before he speaks of this people living and what I will do, he speaks of prophesying, of preaching unto these dry bones. It hath pleased God, beloved, by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Is that not 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18? For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. How can one who died on the cross save us and have victory? Sounds like defeat to me. But unto us who are saved it is the power of God because of the one who died on that cross and because... The Lord God is pleased, having set forth who this one is, to save his own by the power of the preaching. For it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Preach, Ezekiel, man of God. You do what I require of you. Be faithful to it. And I, according to my electing mercy and irresistible grace, will perform what you Merely by the preaching cannot possibly perform. But when I decide to add my power to the preaching, then behold, wonders indeed. And so, beloved, he prophesied. And, he, and there comes to come together the bones. But what did he preach? 
in the first place, beloved, what he preached has to do here, according to the passage, the power of God, the power of God into salvation, the sovereignty of God, the faithfulness of God. And when you flesh that out in New Testament gospel, it has to do with the love of God for his own, whom he will save according to his own purpose, a love that cannot fail and in an irresistible sort. Magnify the sovereignty of God and the wonder of his grace and believe in the one whom he hath set forth. But you must add to that the call to repentance. That's also part of this preaching that's determined, beloved, by the whole of the context. It's a striking thing that what you read in chapter 33, when Ezekiel has been preaching and there doesn't seem to be any great noticeable fruit. And you read there in, verse, in chapter 33, verse 30, first of all, Son of man, the children of thy people are talking about thee by the walls and the doors of the houses. Everyone his brother is saying, come, hear the word that comes forth from, from this prophet. And then 31, and they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as if they are my people. It says just simply, my people. And they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love. Oh, what a stimulating sermon. Well said and brief and to the point. But their heart goeth after their covetousness. They continue according to their lusts. They hear the word. Say, well, that was a good word. They leave the sanctuary, they head out into the streets in life, and they continue to pursue their immoralities. They hear thy words, but they will not do them. They will not turn ye, turn ye, turn ye from their evil ways. Preach, son of man. I have my people, and now I will bring a wonder to pass. Repentance. Repentance is just prior, you know, to our chapter, chapter 37. In chapter 36, verse 31, you read this. You shall remember your evil ways. Notice, you shall remember now your evil ways, your doings that were not good. Shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Look, that word loathe. In many ways, that word loathe is a description of true repentance, beloved. Loathe means you find something repugnant. And in this instance, you find repugnant what you once found appealing. And one wakes up to the fact what I have found appealing is like rotten meat roadkill along the street. And I've been feasting on that, thinking it's wonderful. And now my eyes are open and my ears now hear, and I realize what rotten meat that is. It, I find it repugnant, and I find myself repugnant. I loathe myself for having found it so appealing. Lord, have mercy upon me. And what I find appealing now is what the Lord God himself sets forth, represented by the table, if you will, his meat, his drink, his word. Loathe oneself. And as a result of this loathing oneself, what we read in our chapter towards the conclusion, neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. Why won't they do this? Because of what we just read, beloved, in God's wonder with the dry bones. 
And he preached. And the sinners were laid upon them, and the flesh, and the breath, and they lived, that they may know, I am Jehovah, the God of power and of faithfulness, and a love that is beyond all telling. And I prophesied, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, there was a shaking, and the bones to get, came together, bone to his bone, and sinews and flesh came upon them, and skin and skin covered them above. You know, the spiritual and the foot bone was connected to the ankle bone, and the ankle bone to the leg bone, and the leg bone to the knee bone, and the knee bone to the thigh bone, and right on up to the head bone. What's so interesting about that spiritual is that it's right on. Because there's a refrain that occurs in that spiritual again and again. Thus saith the word of the Lord. Thus saith the word of the Lord. Thus saith the word of the Lord. And as the word of the Lord was preached, you have the coming together of the bones. And the bones become bodies. And yet, what's interesting is, they do not yet become living bodies. So that you have all the bones coming together, finding themselves person by person out of that whole chaotic mess of bones. And they lay there as corpses, really, but there was no breath in them. And undoubtedly, the Lord is reminding Ezekiel and the people that preaching all by itself cannot accomplish salvation. It can get some very warm responses, some very emotional responses. Go to the parable of the sower of the seed... And some fell on this shallow soil that was warmed, and something sprang up very quickly with enthusiasm, and then found out what was required of them in self-denial, and even to suffer for Christ's sake and bear reproach, and that wasn't for them, and they withered away, and they bore no fruit. They weren't rooted in Christ, and they had not been breathed upon. So with the preaching, if it's going to bear this wonderful fruit... Must go this breath of God. Prophesy. It's almost, you know, prayer. When you preach, you address the people. Now it's as though the, the, the prophet is addressing the Lord God in a way of a, of a prayer. And prophesy. Speak to the winds. And that wind, beloved, blows whithersoever he listeth. And a man is born again. Has the newness of a heart. And he said, eyes to see. To see what? The error of his ways, first of all. And he has the eyes to see what the Lord requires of him. And he has the ears to hear where he went astray. But also the path of the Lord, what he is to believe and what he is to confess and how he is to live. And now you have a living soul who can and will and does respond to the words of the prophets. Now they listen and they go out and they do what is required according to the word of the Lord, you see, by the power of the operations of the Holy Spirit. That's why they were made living. So now you have the people who will respond as they ought. And in so doing, beloved, what, what do they glorify? They're doing? They glorify the wonderful grace of God that can make such out of mere dry bones and bring such life, even children and children's children who are spiritually alive, out of such dry bones to the glory of the grace of a transforming God unto life and to service 
the love. That doesn't minimize grace. That magnifies the power of grace. And it has so much to do with repentance. Remember the prophet Joel. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Who knoweth if the Lord will return and leave a blessing behind? Interesting, you know, the order there, isn't it? Rend your hearts and not your garments. And now who knoweth following that whether the Lord will return himself, forgive your sins, receive you in mercy, and leave a blessing behind. Beloved, Christianity, biblical Christianity 101. We leave it there. And what was the great fruit? You say a multitude was saved. More than a multitude, what was saved, beloved, was a mighty army and exceeding great. To what people does that refer? Well, you may say to some extent it refers to the people who returned to Jerusalem to some extent. And yet they are not a mighty army. They were not a spiritual force to be reckoned with. They remain under the heel of the oppressor, oppressors, do they not? Persia and right on down the line after they're delivered from Babylon. But their being returned from Babylon indicated God would keep his word. In the end, beloved, it's a messianic word. That's why there is this reference here, Father, following down in the chapter, this reference to this David who's going to come. A warrior king in the interest of a church militant, beloved. A mighty army. And that's the New Testament church. Christ ascends. He drives Satan out of heaven. And then pours out his Holy Spirit upon the church. And they become a gospel-preaching church, don't they? A gospel-preaching people, beginning with the apostles, but a gospel that's incubated and nurtured by the church throughout the ages. And that church, beloved, is as a mighty army. The world may not see it, and you and I may sometimes not be able to see it. They seem so weak and, and small. But do you realize, beloved, how many victories the Lord Jesus has had over the souls of men in raising the dead throughout the 2,000 years as we wait for his return, and he never suffered loss, he hasn't lost one soul. He keeps taking soul after soul after soul from the valley of death and the bondage to sin to Satan and renews him and never loses him again. His record is perfect, beloved. Satan keeps losing souls. 10,000 times 10,000, that's a pretty immense number when you multiply 10,000 times 10,000. A mighty army. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. 2 Corinthians 10, 4. But mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Notice that, to the obedience of Christ, who now hear and respond as required. By the sword of the Spirit, not by physical might, not by military power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. We need to hear that. We may be few as compared with the world and weak, and the forces of evil grow and grow exponentially year by year, and our unrighteousness seems to have it, its way in every facet of life. And how in the world, beloved, can we possibly 
overcome such evil? How can we be preserved in our generations? How can we continue to have victories when there is such a growing animosity to all that is with truth and godliness and with Christ himself? Hear the word of the Lord. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. If God be for us, who can be against us? As we began in the invocation, beloved, while it is today, harden not your hearts, but go forth in his service and strong in his might to conquer all evil and stand for the right. Amen. Father who art in heaven, for thy word we give thee thanks. Write it upon our hearts, give us faith to follow, and a desire to be numbered with those who have gone before, to be identified with Christ as his own, and, Father, to serve thee in the, in the way of repentance and gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.